Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. My guest today is David Wallace-Wells. He's an editor-at-large at New York Magazine, author of the excellent book, The Uninhabitable Earth. Uh, but we are not going to talk about that so much, um, although we will talk about the people who inhabit the Earth. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks. It's good to be here. I feel like I should say um, long-time listener, first-time caller. It's really, there you uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> That's the dream. Um, yeah. So I, 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 we wanted to talk about the lab leak theory hypothesis um, and the, the, the evidence for it. And it, it seems like there's been some some news on this front uh, over the past couple of days, even since we booked the show. Um, the Bloom Lab has, uh, as I understand it, um, they're saying that there was data about the sort of earliest genetic sequencing of the new coronavirus that has been sort of mysteriously deleted from Chinese servers. Is, is that about right? That's just about it. Yeah, there's a guy named Jesse Bloom who works at um, Fred Hutch um, in Washington, who sort of through, you know, on some level amateur hour, like internet sleuthing, figured out that he could access some genetic data that had been deleted from some public databases um, that essentially amounted to a map of coronavirus cases probably in, in January of 2020, maybe a little earlier, although it's not entirely clear. And this is his analysis of what he was able to retrieve is a little inconclusive. It certainly doesn't point in any direct or obvious way to um, genetic ma- manipulation or the alternative explanation, a sort of zoonotic lim- link for, uh, leap from animals. But it shows that there was some amount of, you know, interference cover up going on um, at some level of the Chinese scientific community, whereby some information about the early spread of the disease that had been made public was then removed. And then, you know, when pressed by scientists and investigators elsewhere in the world um, and by the WHO, the relevant Chinese authorities said that this data had never been collected and there was no way to get at it. So the sort of best data evidence that anybody trying to look into the origin of the disease could hope for didn't exist. It turns out it seems that it did exist um, and indeed was made public and then taken away. So, you know, it's another instance of the sort of bad behavior by Chinese authorities here, although personally, I'm not sure how meaningfully it adds to the case for 
a lab leak. Right. I mean, what would be sort of convenient from a journalistic standpoint is if when he got the data, it was like, aha, here's Xi Jinping's secret confession. And now we know the <laughs> truth. Um, it turns out, you know, when he looked at it, I, I guess the conclusion was this shows it was spreading probably a little bit before the first reports um, from the seafood market. But I think we already knew that, right? I, I, I realized in recent months writing about this that not everybody knows we knew that, but I think it's been pretty clearly established that that seafood market where the first outbreak came and the initial media coverage was like, ah, it came from this fish market, that that is not the case, right? I mean, in fact, there have been cases elsewhere in the world outside of China that predate that, um, that outbreak. So, right. you know, but as with everything else with this pandemic, there are so many levels of knowledge and authority. So what, you know, what is, has appeared on the front page of the New York Times is very different from what someone who might be following, um, incredibly intricate arcane debates, um, on Twitter about it knows. So, you know, quote unquote, we quote unquote knew that the disease was spreading before, um, the first officially acknowledged cases. But this is to some degree a confirmation of that. More significantly, I think it's a confirmation that there was you know, meaningful genetic sequencing of those early cases done. And for some reason, possibly nefarious, possibly what qualifies as innocent in this context, you know, that information was removed from the public eye. So we don't really know what that says or what it means. Um, the truth is, I think that to the extent that um, Jesse Bloom was able to actually analyze the sequences he pulled down from the, this cached version of the internet, you could make a case that that information um, lines up with the theory that the disease was carried to Wuhan by a traveler, um, not by virus hunters. But it, it's again, it's it's far from definitive. It's just one of many, many sometimes contradictory circumstantial bits of evidence that um, have been pulled together around this question over the last year or so. And what you have is a pretty clear, this is one of the most clear cut, but definitely not the first instances where we can see that the, the Chinese government is being squirrely about the whole situation, which... If the country we were talking about wasn't China, right, if it was like some really little country that was being weird and not forthcoming and deleting stuff and not sending scientists in, I think you would say on a policy level that it's like, well, we just got to we got to like lean on these guys harder. And the difficulty, I think, obviously, is that China is like a really big, powerful country, and it's not obvious that you can make them be cooperative. Um, and they just haven't been, right? I mean, so a lot of the the sort of discussion around this seems a little deadlock that like the WHO did this inquiry. I think most people think that was not super adequate. But then it's like, what do you do, right? There's not a like magic wand in which uh, China becomes super forthcoming. Uh, they're not forthcoming in general, like just about stuff. It is not a highly transparent um, situation over there. So it's it's hard for me to know exactly what to conclude from this. Like you you shouldn't delete genomic data off of public servers and then lie to the world about it. Well, one upshot of this paper in particular in that context is that, you know, a few weeks ago, it might have been a plausible thing to say, well, okay, Ch China's sort of stonewalling, but really ultimately... What's the point of pressuring when the data that we're looking for isn't really there? Like if they deleted those databases, they're deleted. If that information, um, you know, was removed from those servers, it's no longer there. If, you know, even if we could get them to 
allow the sort of investigation that we're hoping for, probably we'd come up empty handed anyway, um, analysis of, of the case at hand. This suggests that there may be some sort of in between evidence yeah. data that is findable maybe would be more easily findable with the aid of, you know, the Chinese government, but may even be findable if it's just one lone researcher working in his downtime out in Washington. And I think that means that, you know, there is some chance that we get some more meaningful new information about the origin of the virus, which is on some level comforting to me because as someone who's followed this relatively closely for a while, I've been feeling for months now you know, pretty certain myself that like we were never going to know and that mm. the rest of our lives we're going to be spent in part debating the origins of this disease in much the way that we've been debating them for the past few months. And since that's been sort of like, you know, those debates have been so happy to, or, you know, so exciting to be a part of, so um, satisfying to be a part of, it was a sort of a distressing preview of our future. I think it's possible um, now to think that we might be able to find some more stuff out some way, although I don't know exactly how likely that is or how definitive that proof will be. And I do think it's notable that in the late stages of the Trump presidency, there was quite a lot of energy that seems to have been spent both in the State Department um, and in the National Security Council, essentially working through the intelligence community to try to make the case that this did come from a lab and that the responsibility for the pandemic therefore lay with China. And they didn't really come up with anything that like, the amateur researchers on Twitter hadn't come up with themselves. So, <laughs> you know, if you're, you know, it's not like the American intelligence community is the end all be all here. Like, obviously, they're flawed and they're full of people who have, you know, limited horizons and limited capacities, too. But if you're deploying something like the full apparatus of the American intelligence community to investigate the origins of the um, coronavirus, and all you can come up with is facts that, you know, a few outsider researchers um, have been posting on Medium and on Twitter. For me, it's not all that encouraging a sign for the lab leak theory and, and probably, I would say, an argument um, to take it less seriously rather than more. But so you you have been um, you've been following this pretty closely for for a while. And, you know, one thing that I see people sort of argue about, because there's clearly been a change in uh, the tone of the media coverage of this question. Uh, but something that that I, I see disagreement about is has anything changed factually? Like, did new information come to light between today and where we were a year ago that is sort of why this has become a more respectable thing to talk about? Or is it just a kind of a change in conventional wisdom in the press? You know, my sense is basically nothing meaningful has changed. There have been a few little bits of circumstantial evidence. We had um, reports about illnesses at the Wuhan Institute um, re three researchers apparently went to the hospital late last fall. That was something that actually had been sort of publicly known, but was published in a, in a much more dramatic way by the Wall Street Journal a couple of months ago. You know, there was this cache of Tony Fauci emails, um, including one exchange with a researcher named Christian Anderson, who had been among the most vocal critics of a lab leak hypothesis um, in the spring of 2020, in which Anderson said at first that he suspected that there, there had been some manipulation of the virus, or at least that it was, quote unquote, inconsistent with expectations from uh, evolutionary theory, I think is the phrase he used. And then shortly thereafter, you know, sort of more publicly reversed himself and said that, in fact, um, the 
sequencing and analysis he had done showed that it was it was quite consistent with expectation with his expectations from evolutionary theory. And then there's this this new bit of data that Jesse Bloom dug up just in the last couple of days. So there are those three sort of like small pieces of evidence that have emerged. But in the big picture, I think the case is very much the case that was not just made in, you know, the Nicholson Baker story that I edited and published at New York, um, published in January, not just essentially the same as the case that was made in a Boston Magazine profile of one of these sort of renegade researchers, Alina Chan, but essentially the, the case that was made um, by uh, Yuri Dagan in a Medium post last April. I think basically it amounts to we have not found an intermediate animal host. Um, a few of the most plausible explanations for what animals might have allowed this virus to jump from bats to humans have proven to be, you know, those theories have had holes poked in them. So we don't have a plausible, defensible, clear argument for how it got from bats to humans. And there is this strange fact that, you know, bat populations don't live really anywhere near Wuhan. Um, and yet Wuhan is the place where there is this institute that is devoted in large part to the research of viruses of this kind. Um, we know that they stored many of these viruses or fragments of these viruses in that institute. And we know that there have been some concerns about uh, lab safety there, as, as there have been, not to cast dispersions on Chinese research, as there have been at many high-level bio, you know, bio-research facilities all around the world, including in the United States. So, you know, for these reasons, there's a sort of like a who knows um, <laughs> well, so I, so I mean, I, you know, I think like there's different, there's different ways you can talk about this, right? And I, one phrase that not just in lab leak, but with a, a lot of things related to COVID has ricocheted around is the idea of no evidence for something or other. And I never think that that's like a great way to think about the world. Right. It's like you you sort of need to sort of go through and what are what is the most plausible kind of theories out there. Right. I mean, what should your best guess be? And the first thing, which I think is clearly right, is you hear a new virus has arisen in the human population. Your best guess is it crossed over from some animal somewhere. Like that's where most viruses come from. It, that's like what scientists will tell you. You hear a new outbreak. You assume there's an animal involved. But then you look, right? So you're like, well, what what animal is it, right? And it's as we have gone longer without identifying an animal, that should change your, your view, I think, like how confident you are about this zoonotic crossover thing. And then you have the background facts, right? It's related to bat coronaviruses. There are a lot of bats in the world. There don't happen to be a lot of bats in Wuhan, but there is this virus lab in Wuhan. <laughs> and, and they study these things. So, you know, you, you can't go, um, if you're the district attorney, like you can't go to court with an argument like that for good reason in the criminal justice system, but also as journalists and as human beings, you know, we have to look at these things, right? You start with maybe a strong presumption that new viruses come from animals, but that that should change at a certain point when you can't identify an animal, uh, when the animals it comes from aren't in the place, you know, where it's happening. Um, so like, it's completely circumstantial on some <laughs> level, but also it's not, I, th I think it's like, it's not unreasonable, right? I mean, just like when people first started saying, I mean, I, I think, uh, I, I was at, at Vox and we made a great video about markets and pangolins and this whole thing. And it was a good video. It was very informative. And it was a 
like totally reasonable hypothesis. But there was never like we never had the smoking pangolin. Right. Um, and now we know more. And like we it appears that there is no such pangolin. And that, it seems to me, is a kind of evidence. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's it's circumstantial, but it, a lot, you know, a lot depends on what sort of priors you carry into this conversation. So, you know, defenders of the zoonotic hypothesis would say, as you did at the start, we know of many more viruses that have jumped from animals um, to humans that have come out of a lab. In fact, we basically don't know of any that have come out of a lab. And so your your baseline of expectation should always be that's what happened here unless we see very, very clear evidence of an alternate theory. Now, lab leak um, partisans would say, okay, but we've only been doing this kind of research with viruses for, you know, a decade or two. We've been doing it globally, you know, in sort of limited ways. We shouldn't expect that it would have produced a large number of leaks to this point. But people who've been thinking about these issues for a long time have been worrying about precisely this kind of leak, essentially since this sort of research um, was first undertaken. And as a result, it deserves to be taken seriously as a plausible account of um, the emergence of the disease. Personally, I've, you know, I don't know exactly how to adjudicate these matters. It seems to me totally plausible that we should be worrying about lab safety and lab security. We should be taking seriously the fact of a, um, of a new disease emerging from a lab when we are essentially engineering new diseases in those labs. And we know from a much longer sweep of, of research history that lab leaks happen all the time, lab accidents happen all the time. On the other hand, you know, I don't think anyone looking at the genetic sequence of the disease has proven in any um, definitive or inarguable way that SARS-CoV-2 is built in such a way or, or lives in such a way that it couldn't have come about naturally. Right. They've been staring at these at these gene sequences. And yeah, you could you could say, OK, we don't have an intermediate host. That's a, that's a piece of evidence. But it's also a piece of evidence that at best we can say there are curious features of this disease we haven't seen before, but they are also not inconsistent with um, what we know about how viruses evolve. The thing that really strikes me about the evolution of the narrative, which is to say the fact that mainstream media at least, and I think the American public as a whole, is now much more open to and comfortable talking about the possibility of a lab leak origin of the disease than it was just six months ago, is the extent to which that narrative has really been shaped by a small group of actors in the Trump administration and in Biden's national security teams who are, you know, undeniably like China hawks. Yes. And have an interest in not just in, I think very importantly, not in proving that this came out of a lab. I basically think, or I, I don't expect that is going to happen anytime soon, but who are interested in using that ambiguity as a sort of a, um, a rhetorical cudgel with which to shape American public opinion and possibly American foreign policy. And it is notable in that sense, you know, this is like the one area of agreement between the Trump administration and the Biden administration is that like China is bad. And given that the people who are peddling this, um, and we can talk a little bit about exactly how that narrative was sort of cooked up in the, in the Trump administration in particular, given how much time they spent trying to put together their argument, as I said earlier, it's, you know, it's really striking to me that they, they've, they've basically not made a stronger case than they have. Um, and they're offering us at best a quite patchy circumstantial argument, which may indeed 
prove accurate. I don't want to dismiss the lab leak hypothesis out of hand, but we, we have been told that it's okay to think this by people who have a very clear vested interest in using the hypothesis to prosecute a more hostile American approach to Chinese foreign policy. Yeah, let's take a break. And, and then I want to return to this question of who wants this to be true. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. I, I think in mainstream politics, right, this is mostly played as a debate about China, right? Going back to Tom Cotton's sort of original lab stuff to the quote-unquote debunkings of him that were done in the press. Mike Pompeo and the State Department did a lot of work on this. Um, Joe Biden, really, back in last February, was sort of positioning himself as he was going to be the true tough-on-China, tough-on-pandemics guy, and that that has carried through really as a foreign policy question, right? The idea being that it's somehow, that it's China's fault if this uh, came from a lab or that China's culpable for not being forthcoming about it. But then there's this other debate, right, which is really about laboratories rather than about China. And I think in the scientific community, that's the sort of the hot potato, right, on both 
sides, that you have one group of people who have been arguing for years that it's dangerous to be doing, um, it's, it's called gain of function research, right? But like taking viruses and doing experiments on them, making them, them bigger and badder. And you can find articles in the Atlantic and Vox elsewhere before the pandemic by people saying like, eh, we really shouldn't do this. Um, and then you have another community of scientists who like do think that we should do this. And they are really arguing about like, science and funding and and lab safety, not about China. And, you know, and that subtext sort of cuts on both sides, right? I mean, there are pe- people who are involved in gain-of-function research have a vested interest in not having people be freaked out that their kind of work caused this pandemic, and people who have been very concerned uh, about this would like to leverage um public concerns to to get regulatory changes. Yeah, I mean, I would say just as a first really big framing observation, like this pandemic has been really awful. I mean, yes. mil- millions I'm of people- I'm against it. <laughs> millions of people have died. You know, hundreds of millions of people have been infected, suffering. The economies of the world have struggled enormously. Much of the developing world is only at most halfway through it, and we're just going to see the toll of this disease mount over the next year or two. It is one of the most catastrophic world historical events of my lifetime. Like, What is responsible for this happening is an incredibly important question just on its own terms. It's also important to the extent that we want to think about adjudicating responsibility and guilt to, to figure out exactly what's going on. And it's thirdly important to try to engineer some kind of protocol or policy response or new research regime that could, in theory, protect us in the future, whether it came from seafood markets and, you know, essentially the destabilizing of ecosystems and, you know, or whether it came out of a lab or however it came about. We want to We want to think about how to prevent this from happening because it is like, unbelievably bad (laughs) what this disease has unleashed. And on that point, when we think about the possibility that it came out of a lab, I think it's really important to understand that it's not just a question to consider sort of independent of geopolitics, but that the lab that we're talking about is in some sense a part of an American research apparatus. It is not, you know, a wholly own subsidiary of the National Institute of Health. It's not run and overseen directly by Tony Fauci, but it is a part of a research project which is American in its origin and American in its design and was funded to some degree by American money and um, sort of supervised to some degree by American scientists. So this whole project, which you refer to as gain of function, there's a sort of an interesting back and forth that Fauci had with Rand Paul a few months ago, um, in which he was sort of splitting hairs over what gain of function means. But in general, the idea of gathering viruses in the wild, storing them in centralized locations where you can at least study them and possibly sort of speed up their evolution, either just by making them reproduce over and over again, or in more direct ways through genetic manipulation to see whether diseases that are out there in the world could leap to humans and could become more infectious. That whole project is at core an American one. And, you know, whether there was some safety oversight and lab leak 
in Wuhan, in theory, there's, there, there are Chinese questions there. And in theory, a cover-up that, that might have followed from that would also be of geopolitical importance. But in terms of like, what is the original sin of a lab leak origin? It's actually not Chinese. It's American. And I think in that sense, um, those pushing to blame China are being at the very least a little simplistic. We can say a lot about the way that they're um, blockading new research and investigation, but the core sin might just as easily have happened at, you know, UNC or in Texas or at a number of other labs that are doing similar work all around the world, you know, inspired by or at the direction of um, American scientists. And this is this is important because, you know, when we think about um, I, I think to somebody who's not aware of the American side of this, it kind of looked like, well, we had these like Trump China hawks on the one hand trying to gin up something. Uh, but then we had like, like the good scientists, right? And we, and we trust the science and they were all saying, no, 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 right? Like, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, one, one of the most interesting things about the New York piece is that, you know, it went into depth in the sort of back and forths before the pandemic, uh, that were happening at the NIH where People were like, eh, we should probably stop funding this research at this lab. And then they decided, no, like we're, we're going to go ahead with it. Um, and that means that, you know, important American scientists are implicated in the question of like, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and its safety and its thing there. So just as, I mean, we know, I, I don't think Mike Pompeo like really cares too much about scientific facts. He has a, a foreign policy idea. Um, but also we have an NIH and, and this company, um, the Eco Health Alliance and other people who are involved in this. They are legitimately experts in this field. So they are the kind of people you would speak to, but they are also involved. It's, there's not just Americans over here and we're talking about something in, in China. It's actually an international project with American funding, um, with disagreements among American scientists, and ultimately a decision that like, yes, like we want in on this um, Asian bat virus project. And it's, you know, I don't know. I mean, you can't you can't totally dismiss uh, everything everybody says just because they have some kind of conflict of interest in it. But I feel like most of the writing on this last year, it seemed a little naive to me in retrospect. I mean, knowing what I understand now about sort of the American science community's involvement with this whole topic. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Peter Daszak, who's the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, has sort of come to be seen, at least by by those who are worried about the possibility of a lab leak as a, as a sort of a arch villain here. Um, he is the person who sort of funneled American money to the Wuhan Institute, but he's also the person who coordinated the sort of PR response early on in the, in the pandemic to say that um, that we know this came from animals. And he also was on the WHO investigative team um, that went over to China and sort of failed to find anything and, and sort of said... We're, we're quite sure that this is um, zoonotic in origin, only to have the, the head of the WHO come out and say, actually, we're not really so sure. Like the investigation didn't didn't give us enough to say that. And of course, Anthony Fauci is involved in this um, as well because his you know he sort of oversaw a lot of a lot of this funding. I had a really interesting conversation a week or two ago with Mark Lipsitch, who's um, a Harvard epidemiologist who's been among the most prominent public health 
communicators throughout the pandemic and happens to also have led a crusade against this kind of research um, going back about a decade and is sort of single-handedly responsible or, or, you know, with a couple of other partners for making this a real um, concern in the in the Obama administration such that there was a pause on funding for it for a while. And then it was, um, the, the funding was resumed under Trump after having, you know, after they, they sort of instituted some, a little more oversight um, on the, on the grant process. And he said a few things that were really sort of fascinating to me. Um, one was that he didn't think that we have to worry about you know, we shouldn't adjudicate the question of um, research being valuable or dangerous in terms of risk. He said we should really focus on benefits. And he said even putting aside whether doing gain-of-function research on these kinds of viruses um, represents a real pandemic risk, he said the benefits are actually quite small. The advocates would tell you that we need to do this work in order to prepare a vaccine or understand what pandemic threats we face going forward. He said actually all of that work might be better done not by adapting viruses so that they can thrive in humans, but in fact, adapting them so that they can thrive in mice and then doing the work in mice. Because anytime you're developing a vaccine, you're doing it actually in non-human animals first, not in humans. And so we're, we're taking this completely unnecessary risk. But he was saying, more importantly, all of the benefits that we can get out of this kind of virus research, actually, we can get out of it without making these viruses jump into humans or making them more transmissible in humans or virulent in humans, which is what the research is doing. Um, that to me was a quite persuasive and compelling point. And, you know, he, he was also quite clear about how central the American institutional and funding apparatus was in all of this work, which is to say, when I was pressing him about what could be done going forward in terms of policy responses, you know, I kept pressing him about the idea of a sort of global nuclear nonproliferation like regime um, in which coordinated, there was coordinated oversight and an expectation of transparency. And if particular labs weren't cooperating, then you could kind of assume that they were bad actors. And he was saying, you know, the most important thing is just um, being really a lot better and clearer about like what papers get published in the big American journals, hmm. because that is absolutely the most important driver of scientific reputation and funding all around the world. Um, this is not something that China would be doing, he said, if it didn't mean a lot to the relevant authorities in the United States and to a lesser extent in Europe. Which was fascinating to me because the way that I came to this as a, as a layperson was to assume that especially in parts of the world where there was a kind of latent bat population with, you know, full of diseases that could, um, theoretically jump to humans, there would be a, a, a really strong interest in doing whatever research you could to sort of get a handle on that threat. And, um, Southeast Asia is, is really the, the sort of the home of global bat population. But he was saying, you know, the interest even there is really, um, really derives from American interest. It's not local. And so that we could do quite a lot to choke off that work if we wanted to, simply by changing our own standards over here. Okay, let's let's take a second break. And, and I want to I want to pull apart those points a little bit. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. 
Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit Wise.com. That's Wise, W-I-S-E.com, Wise.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So I think this is so important because I think it's it's sort of easy to assume that if we're talking about a Chinese virus lab and geopolitical conflict is in the background of our concerns, that the accusation is that there was like a secret weapon being built. And what's amazing about that is that, I mean, somebody somewhere could be working on secret bioweapons, but like the overt purpose of this laboratory was with American funding and American encouragement. There's like a a view in the world that has uh, purchase in the American government that this is a not like weapons research, that this is a good way to protect us against pandemics. And this seems to me to be the area where we really have learned a lot since last spring, because we we had the most successful vaccine development program uh, in history, right? Like actually happened in response to this pandemic. And as far as I can tell, it did not rely at all on this kind of research, right? So it might have sounded plausible. I mean, we didn't know if mRNA vaccines like would work at all four years ago. Um, so you you might have thought, okay, this is like really promising. Um, but now it seems like we actually like have found a good way to manufacture vaccines for new diseases. And it doesn't involve dangerous experimentation. And And that to me is like much more persuasive than anything that we've sort of like learned about the actual lab is that we've learned about the value of this research and it it really doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to be there right like we don't have dashak and those people taking their victory lap where it's like thanks to our bat virus research we were really able to like they they didn't accomplish anything i think that if what you're hoping to do for the next pandemic is recreate the timeline of vaccine rollout that we had this time you're totally right which is to say you know, I, I wrote a piece about this in December, but, you know, we de- we designed the Moderna designed their their vaccine within two days of the release of the of the genetic sequence of um, the virus. That's really fast. Unbelievably fast. I mean, literally, <laughs> it was before 
um, we even knew for sure that there was human to human transmission of the disease. We had the vaccine um, before any American had been confirmed ill and weeks, but be- weeks before any American had died. In fact, I think they had actually begun manufacturing the vaccine for, um, for clinical trials before any American had died. So that's unbelievably fast. It still took from that point, you know, nine or 10 months before the vaccines were really rolled out to the public. In writing this story that I, that I wrote about this, which was called, I think, um, we had the vaccine the whole time. Um, a lot of the people who are most excited about what this meant for future vaccine development were pointing to virus research of this kind in the sense that they said, if we have these databases of potential pandemic viruses, we can develop vaccines against them in the way that the Moderna one was was developed for the coronavirus, and then run through some degree of clinical testing even before those viruses jump into humans. So that by the time we see the first case, we don't just have the vaccine and then have to go through the process of clinical trials. We have a post-clinical trial vaccine ready to go, which would mean in theory, something like delivering the drug to people within a period of, I don't know, six or eight weeks from the time of the first case, which would have really meaningfully changed the, if that happened this time, would have dramatically changed the course of the pandemic. It would have meant that a few thousand Americans rather than 600,000 Americans had died. And that differential is really significant. Now, you know, you have to consider, first of all, like, could we have accelerated those clinical trials without that research? Probably to some degree we could have. How significant is the preliminary work that you you could do in these laboratories in order to um, do that clinical trial work um, to, you know, to begin with? I would say that's unclear. And then maybe more, more broadly, you have to ask, is the value of potentially saving those lives worth the risk of creating a pandemic that kills all these people. Sure. I mean, you know, on some level, this was, it's, you know, a lot, I, many people have said, I think maybe even you've written in a place or two, um, or maybe on, on the podcast, you've said, you know, it's not totally clear what difference it makes when thinking about the response to this pandemic, whether it came out of a lab or not. We're sort of living with this as it is now. But to me, you know, we had this debate about gain of function research going back a decade. And, you know, if I was engaging in a debate about that, and then somebody handed me this piece of evidence is like, oh, in addition to all of your concerns about this, in fact, a disease got out and killed like maybe 10 million people around the world, that would be a quite persuasive slam dunk argument against doing any more of that research. Um, Now, I don't think that we're likely, as I said earlier, I don't think we're likely to find definitively anytime soon that this disease did in fact come out of a lab, but the possibility, this kind of plausible um, possibility that it did means that I would be much more reluctant to do anything involving that kind of research than I might have been two years ago when I would have been much more easily persuaded that like this sunny utopian medical future was right around the corner if we just, you know, mapped all of the coronavirus genomes out there in the world. Yeah. And, you know, when I, I think this thing about the clinical trials, um, it frustrates me because we clearly could have done the clinical trials for the vaccines that we had faster. But the view, I mean, and you know, people can disagree about this, but I mean, the, the there's a, a 
an ethics view that you shouldn't um, deliberately expose people. It's called a, a human challenge trial, you know, so you could vaccinate people and then you could like throw a virus at them and see really quickly whether it works. And, you know, the FDA and the people involved, the medical community, um, they seem really opposed to that. Um, and so then the way a phase three clinical trial works is that you need the virus to be spreading essentially uncontrolled uh, in order to get the data, right? I, I, I've heard people say to me that like it's weird that the, or or unfortunate that we we got the vaccines authorized faster than people had expected, but also that we had this incredible uh, surge in cases. But the reason the vaccines were authorized is because we had a surge in cases. Uh, if if you vaccinate people and then you let them go about their lives and you just try to see um, how many of the placebo cases get sick, uh, it doesn't it doesn't work unless a lot of people are getting sick. And that, to me, fundamentally is the problem with vaccine development as part of a pandemic response, that you're essentially counting on failure to get your research done. Or best case scenario is we could have sealed the country, you know, the way Taiwan did, and then we could test the vaccine in Brazil or something. But if you if you want to save the world- You're calling that a best case. <laughs> well, but that's, but like, I think it's horrifying. And like, it's, it's horrifying to me that that's considered like medical ethics. Right. Um, but that it's, you know, if, if you want to use vaccines to prevent mass death from novel pandemics, then you need a ethical philosophy of clinical trials that lets you get the data in some more efficient way than uncontrolled spread of disease. It's weird to me that it's like, oh no, the, the ethical... It, We'll, we'll just like try to breed dangerous viruses in labs and then do a mouse experiment. Like that's weird. <laughs> Well, medicine is weird. I would say, you know, it's important to understand there are basically two different kinds of data that you're collecting in clinical trials. The first is about safety and the second is about efficacy. Oh, yeah. Now, safety is good. You know, safety is, is quite critical <laughs> and important. Um, in the midst of a pandemic, um, when there, especially when there aren't other vaccines on the horizon, I think the efficacy data, the argument that we need to gather a lot of efficacy data is not all that strong. Um you know, if you can feel confident that injecting this into somebody's arm isn't going to do them meaningful harm, um, then on some level, you know, we may we may want to think about doing that to many more people before even knowing how effective it is. And indeed, in hospitals, on the treatment side of things, we did a lot of that early in the pandemic. We gave people drugs that we didn't know would work on the assumption that they were relatively safe and in the hope that they might work. It actually ended up being quite disastrous, a lot of that therapy ended up backfiring um, and is part of the reason why you know, case fatality rates were so high in the spring is that doctors really didn't know what they were doing to treat the disease. Mm -hmm. But when you think about you know, testing a new vaccine, those researchers I spoke to about this process were very clear that most of the adverse effects happen quite quickly, mm -hmm. often within minutes, um, but certainly within days, um, which means that you can have a pretty good picture of how safe a vaccine is very, very quickly in rolling it out into the human population. And in fact, can observe those people who are taking it very closely because the window of time in which you need to observe them is quite small. As a result, you can get a pretty good sense quite quickly, like in the space of a few weeks, really, um, about 
you know, just how safe this thing is. And if you feel like it's totally safe, then you might want to think about um, rolling out generally without an efficacy trial and seeing how it works in the real world instead of, of having a trial. On top of all that, nobody I spoke to for that article told me that they were at all surprised that these vaccines were effective. This was the weirdest <laughs> thing. And I feel like there has, I, I feel like there's like a, a, a minor journalism bug here where it was like nobody ever to me in the whole course, you know, in the summer when I would talk to people, um, like real experts who know what they're talking about, they all assumed that the vaccines would be approved, right? Like their their best judgment as scientists who had looked at the available data, who were knowledgeable about infectious diseases. They, and, and these were not people who agree with me about this policy question by the way. Um, they were like, no, like we got to do the process. But I was like, yeah, but come on, like, doesn't it work? They're like, oh yeah, it absolutely works. And and that's a weird, like, that's a weird thing to me. It, it seems like a, it, it's not how I think about costs and benefits at least. And I, you know, I got an email today from University of Maryland School of Medicine because uh, I and tried to enroll my six-year-old in a, a clinical trial for the Moderna vaccine. And they said, oh, you know, thank you for filling out the form. We've got over 4,000 applicants. Um, we don't need nearly that many. So, you know, you're probably not going to get it. America is right now like a wash in Moderna doses, right? We're like post-scarcity of this. It's done its safety trial and it's like okay why not give my kid the the shot right like maybe it won't work i don't know <laughs> but like how would he be worse off that way especially because we're now in a point where you know um all the restrictions on activities are coming off even though kids can't get vaccinated and i support that um but it's all on the theory that well it's not that dangerous in, in small children they don't need to worry so much about it which like is fine but still if a vaccine was licensed uh we would have him get it and like why not open it up um who are we who are we helping exactly um cuz the argument always seems a little a little unclear to me like like they're trying to stop some kind of like profit seeking huckster from selling you fake vaccines but like nobody thinks these are fake vaccines like they're they're very real um with like solid people behind them so i don't get it yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there are some different standards for, you know, research stand, clinical standards for children than for adults, probably for good reason. And I also think there's probably anxiety among public health people about, you know, the fact that the anti-vax culture is sort of focused on the threat to children and what it might mean to, to see a few, you know, ugly adverse outcomes, right. even across a population, you know, even more dramatic than happened with the blood clots. Um, seeing a couple of those in kids would probably really cause some problems. Um, on the other hand, they're going to have to do safety trials in kids uh, at some point, and they're pro presumably going to be rolling it out to the population um, at a later date without any um, adjustment to, to the vaccine. So there is a way in which, you know, it, it is just, it is a bit of theater. I do think personally that we did accelerate the timeline of trials this time. I think presumably if we go through this again in, in another couple of years, we'll accelerate it even further. It may not be as fast as, as you might like, but I think, you know, we are sort of training ourselves to move faster um, than we had before, which is, you know, probably a good thing. Although, you know, given the human cost, um, if we could have even cut that timeline in half, let alone down to a month, the country would have just been in a, in a very, yeah. very, very different place. And I mean, I guess my main point, right, is that, you know, we got to, we've been 
all of the map on, on some different topics here, right? But it's like, <laughs> no, but it's like, you know, you have to think about this all synthetically, right? And it's like, well, if you're going to insist on doing something dangerous, uh, because the idea is uh, that it could speed vaccine development, then you have to look at your checklist of like, well, what are some other ways that we could speed vaccine development? And they all have some risks associated with them. Um, but, you know, but the but the risk of sort of accelerating efficacy trials just seems to be obviously lower than the risk of um, dangerous lab experiments. Right. I mean, this you started this off by like mentioning how bad the pandemic is Um which I I agree. Like in some ways, it's like underrated. Like this is like I think like the worst thing that's happened in several generations. You almost couldn't imagine any benefit that would justify this cost, right? right? Like if it was true and and credible and proven that this came out of a lab, there was no argument that you could make that this research was worth doing, unless it will somehow spare us from an even worse pandemic down the road. Um, but yeah, no, and I, I, you know, one thing that, you know, Americans can sometimes get kind of parochial. And I remember doing some pieces in like 2012, where I was like, oh, you know, hashtag actually, this is like one of the best years uh, to have taken place ever. Um, because, you know, there was really rapid economic growth in China and India. There was not as good, but significant growth in Africa, Brazil, other places like that. So America was kind of like mired in this recession. Um, but like the world as a whole was doing well. There's like a million people died of air pollution in China that year. But yeah, side well, note. <laughs> no, but like, but like COVID has been not quite the opposite of that, but like, I don't know, like we got our vaccines, like we're, we're, we're going strong. Um, or our economy at least survived well. Um, but like tons of the world are like in, in ruins now, um, over and above the sort of, uh, crude, you know, the, the death measurements. And I don't know. It was like, I think like a high status, but low popularity thing to say a couple of years ago that like we should be worried more about preventing pandemics. And like, we really should, like we should be worried much more. Um, but if anything, it's like, vanished from the conversation in a, in an odd way like no, i don't it's really it's really striking i mean you you know it, it was the countries of the world who thought themselves most invulnerable to this threat who were hit hardest last spring and summer and you would think that that would be like an incredible lesson to us um to reprioritize this set of concerns but we've especially in the u.s and the uk we've emerged from that um from that suffering from that all that dying not with our like pride diminished or our vanity diminished, but the opposite. We're now like, well, of course, we're back in the lead here in this race. Like, of course, Americans are now safer, can travel around the world. Like, I mean, almost literally like, you know, colonialists. It's like Americans are going to be traveling this summer, showing their vaccine passports in places where there's like no vaccines. And they're going to be living high on the hog there. That is like, on some level, like a, a horrifying indictment of not just our, you know, our sense of entitlement, but how short-sighted we are that just nine months ago, we were not in a considerably different place than, say, people in India or South Africa or Brazil. In fact, to some degree, we were in a worse spot. And yet we've come out of that not thinking we need to do more to prevent the spread of this disease 
glo- this disease globally, um, or invest in preventing the spread of future diseases globally, but just more like, oh, now that we have like mRNA vaccines, everything's going to be fine in the future. We don't really need to worry about it anymore. And that's, um, I don't know, it's kind of damning, damning on multiple levels. There you go. I think with that cheery thought, um, I should let you go. Um, So thanks, David. Um, This was really great. Great discussion. Um, Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Eric Janakis. News will be back on Tuesday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.